Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. I want to start with a question today. What does greatness look like? Uh, We all want to be people of impact. Uh, We all want to make a difference in the lives of those around us, uh, in our families, with our friends, at our work, in our church. Uh, So what does greatness look like? You can get a book that tells you what it looks like. Uh, I have a book that tells you what greatness looks like, uh, and it's sold a million copies. Uh, It's called Dress for Success. According to the author of this book, greatness is about appearing powerful. Uh, You need to dress for it. The book is aimed at men, and the author says most men make one of four fashion mistakes. Uh, They allow themselves to be dressed by a fashion designer, uh, which is kind of an ego thing. They allow their background to influence the way they dress, uh, just whatever they're used to. Or they allow themselves to be dressed by a salesperson at the store. Uh, Or the number one mistake men make is if you're sitting next to someone, uh, tell them what you think it is. Well, the number one mistake men make is they allow themselves to be dressed by their spouse. Now, there are probably comments uh, happening in living rooms all over the place, but I'm not going to comment because I don't want to get in trouble. Um, This is what the author says. He says, let research tell you what success looks like. There is a dress code and you violate it at your own risk. He writes about one politician who wrote to him for success a politician in a minor office who had been told by uh, political pros that he had no charisma and shouldn't even be uh, running for a minor office. He said, I consulted with him and changed the way he dressed, and today he's the governor of his state. Uh, I won't tell you which state, but the governor of his state. Now, at this point, some of you are wondering, well, what should I be wearing then? And so I'll give you a kind of an executive summary of Dress for Success. Uh, One principle runs all the way through it. He says, greatness and power are associated with dark colors. The darker the colors, the greater their authority. And some people actually buy this stuff and actually do it. It's, It's unbelievable to me. All right, so what does greatness look like? Well, there's another book that has sold even more copies and weighs in with a second opinion. What is greatness? The writer of the book of Mark in the New Testament tells us, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. In Mark 10, just the next chapter, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and two of them have been saying that they want to sit, one on his left and one on his right, because they want to be great in God's kingdom. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, 
you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There is, Jesus says, a standard approach in this world of power and greatness among the Gentiles. Uh, That's his way of saying the world apart from the kingdom of God. The rulers lord it over their followers. And the irony here is there has only been one ruler completely free of his need to lord it over his followers, and that was the Lord. He says the great ones, and the Greek word is the word megaloi. Uh, We get our word mega from this word, the mega ones, the, the big kahunas. They're the tyrants in this world. They use power to dominate or to control, to gain status and uh, inspire fear. Life among them is a competition, like who's the greatest? Who can uh, climb the ladder the highest? Who can impose his will? And Jesus says, no, not so with you. The great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Now, some of you understand that this is a paradox Um, If you want to be first, you must be last. A paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, uh, yet it's actually true. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you must serve. And that doesn't make sense in our world. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to live life to the fullest, if you want to live a great life, it's not about people serving you. It's about giving up your life to serve other people. It's really simple. If you want to be great, be a servant. It's upside down from what the world teaches. The world says, whoever wants to become great must have enough success, money, and power that they're served. Jesus says, whoever wants to become great must be a servant. Well, we're in our fourth week of this series on love, and today we're going to learn how Jesus loved through acts of service and who the great ones really are among us. If you were to ask me what I believe is the greatest tragedy of Christianity, I would have to say it's that Christian people who have grown up in the faith have never allowed God to use them to do anything. Uh, They may have spent years going to church and years studying the Bible and learning about God, but never actually allowing God uh, to work through them. A friend of mine did his dissertation on the 12th century church, And I asked him, why would you want to do a dissertation on the 12th century church? I mean, that would be boring. And he said he chose the 12th century church because there was a shift in the 12th century that is very significant. There's a shift from uh, orthopraxis, the practice of following Jesus, to orthodoxy, the study of following Jesus. And we do a good job today of talking about following Jesus and discussing following Jesus and writing about following Jesus. Uh, We need to go back to practicing following Jesus. And one thing Jesus had to teach his disciples over and over and over again is to love through acts of service. And Jesus modeled this with his life. I mean, this was his life. 
I want to read one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, uh, one of the most powerful and clearest places to see how servanthood is really embedded into the nature of Jesus. Paul is writing, and he uses this beautiful uh, homage to Christ. Now, in order to get the impact of this, I'm going to walk you through a little grammar lesson today. Uh, this will be for just a few moments, so you're going to have to hang in, hang in with me on this. Um, some of you I know from other countries learned English as a second language, which means you understand grammar a lot better than the rest of us who learned it first. Um, so you're just going to have to be uh, patient for these next few moments. Uh, Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now in verse 6, Paul says that Jesus, being in the very nature God, uh, the, tr the translation, that translation could also be uh, the very form of God. And that word form is the Greek word morph. Uh, it's where we get the word metamorphosis. Uh, so Paul, a monotheist of Jewish background, is saying a very remarkable thing here. He's saying Jesus had the essential nature and character of God, that he was God. But Jesus did not consider being equal with God something to be used for his own advantage. Uh, the word Paul uses here refers to the act of snatching or uh, acquisitiveness. Human evaluation generally assumes that God-likeness would mean getting your own way, uh, getting what you want, getting people to serve you. But Paul says Jesus saw God-likeness as giving, uh, spending yourself. Now, this brings us to the grammatical point that I want to make about this verb, being. And if I'm going to lose you today, it's going to be in the next 60 seconds or so. So I just need you to stay with me uh, during this grammar deal. Uh, being in the very nature God, Paul says. And the little verb in the Greek is the verb huparkon. Uh, and it's called a circumstantial participle. Uh, some of you may remember uh, a participle is an ing verb. Uh, in this particular kind of participle, uh, circumstantial particle participles in the, in the Greek have to be translated depending on the circumstance or the context. Um, you have to try to figure out what the author means by it. Um, you can su supply a number of words or phrases to give you uh, the correct understanding. And I'll just show you a few, and we'll try to figure out which one uh, applies. Uh, the word being might be modified with the word although, or because, or by means of, or in order to, or while, or if. Uh, those are several of the possibilities that we might supply to help us understand what Paul is saying here. Now let's try to figure out which one makes the most sense. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple modern examples, and then we'll go back to Philippians 2. Uh, first example, blank, he is a Cubs fan. He despises the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, now, this is not referring to anyone in particular. This is just didactic stuff here. Uh, 
which of those words would you most likely use to fill in the blank? Because, right? Because he is a Cubs fan, he despises the Los Angeles Dodgers. Okay, next one. Blank he said not to, the generous people still gave him butter chews from C's Candy. Generous people they are. Now, which one of the words would you put in the blank there? Although, right? Although he said not to, the generous people still gave him butter chews from C's Candy. Okay, now let's go back to what Paul writes about Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Now, what I'm about to share with you is one of the most beautiful insights into the character of God uh, that I've probably ever seen. Um, we see a sentence like this, and generally translators, if they try to translate the little word being at all, uh, will translate it as a concession with the word although. That is, Jesus became a servant in spite of the fact, or although he was God. It's an exception. It's something unlikely. But I believe, and this is not original with me, that the correct understanding, given what Paul has been saying all along about Jesus, is you should adopt the way of thinking that was also adopted by Christ, Jesus, who, precisely because he was the very nature of God, became a servant. Precisely because he was God, not in spite of the fact, but precisely because he was God, he poured himself out. Precisely because he was God, he sought to serve rather than to be served because it's the nature of God to serve. When Jesus places a towel over his arm and washes the feet of those he loves, he's not disguising who God is. He's revealing who God is. He says God is up to the same old tricks he's been up to before time began. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. When Jesus goes to the cross, when he's whipped and beaten and battered and bleeding and dying, he's not disguising who God is. Uh, we think that because we must misunderstand God. Jesus on the cross is revealing. It's the ultimate revelation of the heart and the nature of God. Jesus hanging on the cross. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And because of this ultimate act of servanthood, Paul goes on to say, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now when Paul says this, it doesn't mean Jesus gets the servant job done. And now he gets to just be pampered and waited on and boss everyone around. What it means is that precisely what is forever exalted and prized and gloriously beautiful is servanthood and humble love. And from the beginning of eternity to creation, to the outworking of redemption after the fall, to the end of eternity, 
uh, the end of time as we know it, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit pour themselves out in humble service to each other and to creation and even to fallen creatures like you and me. And all who watch are amazed and filled with awe and wonder and bow to their knees. Jesus is the greatest servant that ever lived for it's the nature of God to serve. That's who he is. Paul says people can't see that without, see, without being awed and broken by it, that God is a servant. Now, what does this mean for you and me? Well, in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul says, serve one another humbly in love. And it's kind of an odd thing, but it's easy for me to study servanthood, orthodoxy. It's easy for me to study it, to read about it, to teach about it, to admire it, to champion serving. I go to church and I'm deeply moved by what Jesus said about serving. You know, I'm pro-serving. And then I go home and I realize I'm for serving in every way except for when it actually comes time to serving. This was probably the hardest love language for Jesus to teach. Uh, This is the love language that he just kept teaching about from the beginning of his ministry uh, all the way to the end. You see, the problem most of us face when it comes to love is not that we don't know how to do loving things. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist for the most part uh, to figure out how to do loving things. The great problem we face is that love almost always involves acts of service. And that requires the expenditure of energy. A lot of us are simply too drained for, or uh, to be honest, just too lazy to spend energy on acts of service because we devoted our energy to other things. We see this most readily with little children. Loving boils down to certain acts. Will I read to them or read the news? Will I play with them or watch TV? Will I teach them how to clean up their room when it would be so much easier just to leave it a mess? The ugly truth about love is it usually requires that we act. We were on a flight from California to Chicago, uh, my wife and I and our two daughters, back when we had just two kids when they were real young. And I don't know how many of you have ever flown for several hours with small preschool age children, uh, but it's not a pretty sight. Uh, We had taken over the whole back row of the airplane. Uh, Actually, everyone else had evacuated that section. Uh, It was just littered with food and toys and napkins and crayons and scissors and glue and cracker crumbs. And you know you're in trouble when the airline attendant comes up to you and says, would it be okay if your children played outside? (laughs) That's not a good sign. We were exhausted trying to keep up with them, to keep them entertained, to keep them quiet, wondering why did we bring these kids with us on this trip? Like, why do we even have these kids in the first place? A gentleman who was sitting a couple rows in front of us turned around and looked at the field of damage and surveyed the old scene. Uh, He looked at me and said, are those your two kids? I said, yeah. He said, my wife and I would give anything to have two kids. And I said, oh, you you don't have kids. He said, no, we have four kids. We would give anything to have two kids. You see, the brutal truth about love is that generally love just boils down to acts of service. 
Will I make the bed before I go to the office? Will I do the dishes without thinking that I'm some kind of a hero? Will I engage in my kids' education now that they're essentially being homeschooled? Will I devote the time to serve my family and to serve my church and to serve my community? Well, with God's help, we can all show love through acts of service. We can all do this. You know, one of Jesus' strangest and probably least popular parables is actually about serving. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I, while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Well, will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? And so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, this story is kind of odd. I mean, Jesus was supposed to be Mr. Humility and Mr. Servanthood, and yet he tells his, his disciples this story where the master doesn't even bother to say thank you to the servant. And it's precisely because of his disciples' resistance to serving that Jesus tells the story this way. Uh, it's actually quite brilliant. All of Jesus' disciples like to think of themselves as being the greatest. And so he begins this parable by appealing to that mindset. He invites them to identify with the master. He says, suppose one of you has a servant. And so they get to imagine themselves being number one, being the top dog being the one in charge. Then in the context of how work took place in that day, he describes dealing with someone who has an unwilling spirit. In our day, it would be like Jesus said something like this. Which one of you, if you had a spouse, and the both of you got home from work at the same time, and the kids are sick, and the toilet is clogged, and the dirty dishes are in the sink, the house is a mess. If your spouse were to change their clothes and say, Hey, honey, look what I did. I changed my clothes by myself. I put my socks in the laundry basket. I did all these things without being told. Take care of all the other stuff and fix me dinner to celebrate. Which of you would put up with a spouse like that? Or if you ran a business and one of your employees came in and said, you know, I'm at my desk on time. I'm, uh, I've successfully uh, executed my commute. My clothes match, my shoes are tied, my computer is turned on. I deserve a break. I deserve a raise. Now you, my boss, my so-called boss, come do my job for me while I do nothing and get paid for it. Jesus, in the context of his day, is setting up this scene with a vastly uh, underperforming, entitled employee and asking his disciples, I mean, if you were in charge, would you put up with that? All of the disciples say, not a chance. I would never put up with that. They would, they would say, this guy has got to work, do his job with a good attitude. And then Jesus completely reverses the perspective and says to his disciples, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. In other words, disciples of mine, you're not the master. God is the master. You are the servant. Now, the phrase unworthy servants 
doesn't mean they have a self-esteem problem. Uh, that's polite language in the ancient Middle East. That means we will not regard ourselves as entitled or arrogant or presumptuous. Jesus is saying, disciples of mine, I want you to be great servants. And a great servant does not go around saying, hey, look at me, celebrate me, reward me. In fact, this parable actually points to one of the most important signs of growth um, in, servant, in servanthood uh, and in spiritual life in general. When you first obey God, uh, for instance, when you first start to serve, it will seem to you like you've done something heroic. You know, honey, I've emptied the dishwasher. You know, get this on video. Call my mom. She would love this. When you first begin to serve, if you've never done it before, it's just inevitable that you will be filled with thoughts of what an amazingly wonderful thing I've done. Like what a noble person I'm becoming. Why are people not stopping to applaud this in me? Do they not see what this amazing thing is? And as we grow in servanthood, and I know this mostly from people who have grown a whole lot more than I have in this, what people discover is it really is a better way to live. Somewhere along the line, you discover Jesus really knew what he was talking about, that it truly is better to give than to receive. Those are not just words. It's not just a tricky way of trying to get people to do what's right. When people asked Mother Teresa why she served, she said she did it for the joy. Uh, it no longer looked to her like she was doing something heroic. Dallas Willard said one of the signs of spiritual maturity is the thoughts that no longer occur to you. Like one of the great signs of spiritual maturity is the thoughts that no longer occur to you. For instance, if someone wrestles with alcohol, their first day of sobriety will feel heroic to them. They may think through the entire day like how hard and unusual it is that they've stayed sober. After 10 years of sobriety, they don't even think about it nearly as much. I mean, they're free to think about other things, other more interesting things. Now sobriety just looks like moral sanity for which they're just grateful. Spiritual maturity is kind of like that. And spiritual maturity is supremely about servanthood. And servanthood is about love. The greatest command is the command to love. I mean, that's why we're looking at the love languages. And to love means to serve. That's why the greatest sin would be the refusal to obey the greatest commandment, the refusal to love through acts of service. And that's why Jesus is teaching his disciples about this, about the power of loving servanthood through his whole life, right up to the very end. Jesus was gathered in a room with his disciples. He knew he was going to die the next day. And the disciples were having a little quarrel. Like, whose job is it to wash feet? Didn't anyone bring a foot washer? You know, do I have to do everything around here? That kind of thing. In the ancient world, there is no record of a rabbi washing the feet of his disciples, except one. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Whose job is it? Jesus says, it's mine. It's my job. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So who are you going to serve this week? Who in your life has this as their primary love language? And they're just waiting. A friend was telling me how he didn't realize the effect that serving uh, or not serving was having on his family and his marriage. His wife told him, I wanted you to know what it does in my spirit when I see you serving. When I see you vacuuming the rug, I feel closer to you. I feel affection toward you. When I see you washing the dishes unasked, I feel romantic toward you. When I see you bathing our kids, I feel physical desire for you. He said, I bathe our kids several times a day. We have the cleanest kids in California. You know, it's very interesting in my family, my wife and all of my kids have quality time as their primary love language. But when you have three young children during that era, and this is often true of moms with young children, their primary love language becomes acts of service. And it's not just about getting tasks done. It's about the love that gets communicated by serving. Now, being a servant is very different from being a doormat. I just want to mention that. Uh, If you're in a relationship where you feel like you're simply being used or taken for granted, or it's not a full uh, partnership, it'll probably take some courageous conversations. And I just want to encourage you to have those this week. Well, Jesus knew he had to bust stereotypes about servanthood. Uh, The most prominent one of his day was leaders don't serve. I mean, the great ones don't serve. Jesus knew the practice of servanthood is maybe most important for for people who find themselves in positions of power uh, because our egos are so vulnerable to pride. Another stereotype that is kind of still around, it's that, It's the wife's job to serve the husband and make him happy and not vice versa. And some people even think that's biblical. Uh, But the Apostle Paul said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, It's a little hard to get from Jesus loved the church by sacrificing his life for her to I love my wife by insisting that I get to be in charge of the remote control. And guys, I have to tell you, there are a few dynamics I can think of that will strengthen marriages more than to be a church where husbands joyfully and intentionally serve. And so you might want to ask the question, if you're in a marriage or in a relationship, on a scale of one to 10, just ask one another, how full is your love tank these days in a relationship? And what can we do, uh, what can I do to help make it a 10? Uh, And then do that. Now, acts of service are not just about marriage and family. Uh, they're about where we live. They're about where we work. Uh, this week, I mean, you can wash someone's car. You can uh, fill up their gas tank. You could uh, go with someone to the doctor. You could run an errand for someone. Uh, you can ask your neighbor who maybe just recently lost his or her job, is there anything that I could do to help you? And then there is no place where this love language of serving is more important than, I would say, in the church. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So who's the greatest in our church? Uh, Do you know a guy named Chet at Blue Oaks? 
Uh, Chet is retired, and so he works in the mornings at a, as a crossing guard, uh, helping kids uh, get to school safely. And then he works during the day with seniors who are you know, doing in-home care. Uh, in addition to that, he comes to Blue Oaks every week to volunteer with our kids' ministry. Uh, he works with other volunteers who say he is extraordinarily loving. Um, if you've ever seen him, kids flock to him like he's a character out of a fairy tale. I mean, they just love him. You see, Jesus says, that's the greatest. That's what greatness looks like in our church. The only problem with Chet is he's a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Um, I'm imagining boos and hisses uh, happening right now in living rooms. And some of you 49ers fans uh, maybe don't like Chet right now. You don't really care how much he is loved by your kids. Uh, there's a group of people who serve at Open Our Kitchen, making meals for economically disadvantaged people in our community. I mean, that's what greatness looks like. I got a text from a friend this week. She said, Matt, I just want you to know, my toilet paper is your toilet paper. Uh, that's greatness. <laughs> I just want to say, Blue Oaks, we want to be known for extraordinary servanthood. You see, for us as a church, every time someone says, I'm going to help shepherd a group of middle school students, or I'm going to help lead a small group so that people who would otherwise feel alone can have a friend to do life with, or I'm going to use whatever gifts that I have to help the worship team so that our church can just love God and praise him, or I'm going to volunteer to help serve with one of our compassion ministry partners, or I'm going to help set up and tear down, or I'm going to help make those who come to Blue Oaks feel like a family instead of strangers, or I'm going to serve the seniors in our community, or during this shelter in place, I'm going to reach out to other people at Blue Oaks to see how they're doing. That's what makes our church great. All right, now I have to go. Um, I have to go clean the kitchen. <laughs> Uh, I have many, many boxes of butter chews from Seas Candy to put away. Um, let's all ask Jesus to help us speak the love language of serving this week, okay? Uh, let's aim for greatness this week. And then next week, join us again online as we look at the last uh, love language together. Uh, it's going to be a touchy one. All right, I'm just going to go before I say something that I regret. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 845, 10, and 1115. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.